Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined today on episode 44 by two of the podcast's new regular co-hosts. Um, I am here with Brian Herrera of Princeton University, who will be known to our listeners um, through many formats, um, uh, as Stinky Lulu from the Stinky Lulu podcast. Um, Brian, it is the first time that I am seeing you since we worked out together on our uh, remote Mark Fisher fitness class. Thank you again for that invitation. That was a special moment. Um, how has the how has the quarantine self-care and, and physical conditioning been going? Well, that's a good question in terms of physical conditioning, but it is the only thing that I can point to as being a, a sanity piece for me. You know, it's it's really helped with my sanity all the way along in terms of just giving me a structure, a place to go, a place to do. And I just, it's also I, I've thought about it a lot in relation to what we'll be talking about today, because one of the things I've really grooved on with Mark Fisher Fitness's home body program is it has had an element of liveness and inter- interactivity and accountability that sort of has this circuit where you put yourself in this space and it has this sense of instead of it just being a recorded workout, you're actually in the room with other people. And so I, uh, every time I work out, I'm also thinking about all the theater things. So it's a sort of an interesting balance for me. Well, Brian, thank you. And welcome back to the podcast. This is not your first appearance on Untap. Um, you were with us, I believe, in the first year of our um, uh, producing this at a, at a special event in Atha. And it's great to have you back. Um, I am joined also by Miriam Felton-Dansky of Bard College, who has recently made an appearance on on, on, on Tap. Uh, Miriam, welcome and congratulations, I believe. You've recently been named director of Bard's um, theater and performance program. Is that correct? That is correct, Bard's undergraduate theater and performance program. Thank you. That's great. I'm excited I, I, to be I, here. Well, we're excited to have you. It's it's conventional now when I hear that a colleague uh, has been named to a position like that to offer congratulations and condolences. Um, you will be, you know, directing a theater program through a pandemic, but I'm sure Bard is grateful and um, and is going to be in great shape because you're in that role. Thank you so much for for both. Both the congratulations and the condolences are appreciated. (laughs) Today on the podcast, we have three topics uh, that evoke... Uh, to my mind, the truly sci-fi feeling of cultural and social life in late 2020. We have all read and we'll talk about Lindsay Brandon Hunter's fantastic article, We Are Not Making a Movie, Constituting Theater in Live Broadcast, which looks at the form-defining uh, function of broadcast versions of ostensibly live theatrical productions. Um, we will talk about two virtual play festivals or, or presentations that promote and preserve the work of underproduced American playwrights, uh, namely the McCarter Theater's project dedicated to Adrian Kennedy and the Center Theater Group's digital stage presentation of the Greek trilogy of Luis Alfaro. Um, we're interested in these not just as another instance of virtually or digitally accessible, um, uh, very interesting interesting theater, but what does it mean in terms of the project of um, preserving this work and and offering it to audiences in these special venues? And finally, we have sampled even more delights from the recently blooming garden of digitally distributed theater. We watched uh, Split Britches' new play, Last Gasp, WFH, and caught a few other pieces of experimental theater deliberately using Zoom um, as a technology to connect artists to audiences. Before we get to those topics, Miriam has offered to provide the um, uh, land acknowledgement, local history ditch p- dispatch for the episode. So please take it away, Miriam. Thank you. Um, so what I'll be doing here is just um, sharing a testament to the work of one of my colleagues at Bard, um, Christian Crouch, who is a historian, um, an Americanist, and um, the incoming Dean of Graduate Studies at Bard. Um, and she has been working over the past several years to develop a land acknowledgement for Bard that has been done in dialogue um, with the Stockridge Muncie Band of Mohican Indians um, and um, in, in dialogue with um, a number of representatives um, of their um, community, which currently resides in Wisconsin due to forced displacement. Um, And uh, it is just, in fact, last week um, or early this week that um, the dean of the college was able to send us the full text of the land acknowledgement. 
that what that Christian worked with with a number of um, colleagues and with the Stockbridge Muncie community, um, and they approved this text. So I will read it, and then um, I'll just say a little bit um, more about the Stockbridge Muncie um, Mohicans. Um, so the text is in the spirit of truth and equity. It is with gratitude and humility that we acknowledge that we are gathered on the sacred homelands of the Muncie and Mohicaniac, excuse me, people who are the original stewards of this land. Today, due to forced removal, the community resides in Northeast Wisconsin and is known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. We honor and pay respect to their ancestors past and present, as well as to future generations. And we recognize their continuing presence in their homelands. We understand that our acknowledgement requires those of us who are settlers to recognize our own place and responsibilities towards addressing inequity. And, this, and that this ongoing and challenging work requires that we commit to real engagement with the Muncie and Mohican communities to build an inclusive and equitable space for all. Um, so just following on that, um, I won't say too much more, but um, Bard is planning um, to engage with this land acknowledgement, not as a kind of um, finished process, but as the beginning of a much longer conversation um, with these communities that were the original stewards of this land um, and that were um, forcibly removed um, and forced to sell off land for anything from 95 cents to $14 an acre. Um, and a, a big part of this um, will be once um, it is possible um, for members of these communities to travel from Wisconsin to the Bard campus um, to make clear um, the original name of the Hudson River and Bard, for anyone who's been there, um, Bard sits right at the side of the Hudson River and there are many places on campus um, where you can see the Hudson, um, which uh, was originally named the Mahakonatuck. So um, one of the plans, my understanding is, um, is to place markers on campus that acknowledge that original name of the river. Um, so I'll end there, but um, many more, many more plans are to come. That's really interesting. It reminds me, Miriam, of the um, when I did the land acknowledgement and a few episodes ago about the Osage Nation, which um, uh, one of the many peoples who originally inhabited this land before white settlers, their uh, territory is now in Oklahoma. So we acknowledge them when we're when we're doing land acknowledgments. But of course, it, the, because of the policies of removal, um, these people, their ancestors live very far from where where we currently reside now, which I'm sure is a pattern in all sorts of um, other places in, in North America. Um, so we are excited on this episode to talk about an essay that was published in 2019, um, uh, won the ATHA Outstanding Article Award for 2020, and which I know many of our listeners will know because of its timeliness um, and its other virtues. Lindsay Brandon Hunter's We Are Not Making a Movie, Constituting Theater in Live Broadcast, uh, published by Theater Topics in 2019, um, is a very insightful and original take on an issue that is sort of definitive in, in theater and performance studies, the, the question of liveness versus mediation. Listeners will have heard me and, and Sarah Beijung bat this around on several different episodes, but it really builds on what I think are kind of the mainstays of how scholars in our field make these distinctions. Um, she looks at the current practice of broadcasting um, theater from London in particular in the National Theater Live um, uh, uh, enterprise and the way that choices are made which don't just sort of simulate um, a, a live uh, theatrical experience for spectators who are very far away, but in her argument, really serve the purpose of sort of teaching audiences what theater is supposed to be or what a certain version of a definition of theater's essential qualities is, um, but also reifying those understandings of what makes theater theater. And in her words, uh, rendering explicit conventional definitions um, and a kind of orthodoxy of theater, right? So she goes beyond what um, scholars, uh, including Phil Oslander and Sarah Bejung, have 
have said about the distinctions and lack of meaningful distinctions between live staged performance and performance that's accessed through different mediatized versions and makes a really insightful and original argument, which I believe, if I get, if I understand it, it is that essentially productions like this are invested in convincing the audience and convincing the public at large of what theater's essential attributes are and why theater is not a movie. Um, so there's really some really great insights in this. Um, why television is a, a sort of production model that's more appropriate um, than film or other mediatized um, uh, forms in terms of c- convincing audiences of what theater essentially is. Um, there's great insight from her first person research at what the production apparatus of uh, NT Live and, and other um, productions like this are. I was uh, fascinated to find out that when these productions are are broadcast, there's actually a you know sort of satellite broadcast van in the parking lot that's um, distributing the signal so that it can be watched simultaneously in different parts of the world. Um, uh, but there's just a ton in this article that's that's really valuable and really insightful. You know, Brian, I think it, when we talked uh, prior to recording about this article, you mentioned that you've been teaching it um, recently, and I'm just I'm curious to know in in what sort of situations you're teaching it, and and what the students want to pick up uh, on when they read it. Well, I've been I've taught it now twice. I think, I think. Um, I, I incorporated it last semester when we did the abrupt turn to remote instruction uh, in my 21st century Latinx drama class when we sort of took our theater going practice, which was a core curricular component of that class when we moved it from real time shared air theater going to a sort of the boom in virtual and remote or streaming. And so I, I offered it as, a, as a resource and several students found it very useful to sort of help them understand the, um, the continuity in some ways between uh, uh, conventional theater going practice and whatever it was we were beginning to do last fall. And so I knew when I was teaching my course this semester, a course called Theater and Society Now, which is a course that has always been conceived as dealing with the current events of contemporary theater as they might relate to um, broader questions of social change, social transformation, social um, current events, politics, etc. Uh, what became a real core feature of this class was really understanding what we might call the digital turn or the remote turn in performance going. And so it was one of the first articles I assigned. And it was a, it was an article that several of my several of my students kept calling back to and other students said, can we have an opportunity for it to count for us to read it again? The way the course was set up is it was sort of a, a rolling deadline approach where like each week there was an article and you could do an assignment attached to the article that was assigned. And so it, it ended up making two reprise appearances over the course of the semester because students kept saying, I want to read that article, but I need a, I need, I need to get credit. So can we put that on the queue? And so it was interesting. Right. So we didn't actually um, have a lot in the way of conversation about it, notably. What we did end up having was people saying, calling back to that was useful. That was useful. It was something, it was a really interesting, uh, had a huge impact on the class, even though we didn't actually discuss it in in seminar. So, um, but it became something that people found useful. They were interested in the fact that what I found useful about it, revisiting it today myself, was the fact that it gives a lay of the land, a way of sort of thinking about the terrain of what does it mean to present a produced uh virtual event. And it gave a sense of, of, for many of our students who have a fluency in what live theatrical presentation might look like, but don't have a lot of experience, as as Lindsay Brandon Hunter notes herself, she didn't have a lot of experience with TV production. It gives a glimpse into sort of what might be going on behind the scenes, because most of my students might have been behind the scenes in a conventional theater presentation, but not on a TV set. And so there is a sort of a sense of, of beginning to give a vocabulary that they could begin to sort of cobble together ways to talk about works they were saying. That sounds really, really useful. Um, I wonder, Miriam, I think you've, you've read this before and you're familiar with it. Have you taught it or um, what, what's your first point of contact with the article? 
Um, well, I should first just say that Lindsay Brandon Hunter is a dear friend without whom I would never have survived this pandemic. So um, so in the, for the sake of um, full academic disclosure, I, I should say that. Um, I, I was fortunate to read an early draft of this article and so many things leapt out at me rereading it now um, in terms of how effectively she makes an argument um, about the nature of theater and about the the what can feel like lingering liveness debates um, and uh, also um, quite efficiently explained to me what some of my assumptions are about um, the relationship between experimental theater um, and uh, and a kind of um, digital ex exploration um, because what she is working with is not um, is very explicitly not experimental um, and and one of the things that I've been thinking about is um, when we talk about the nature of a theatrical performance, um, what is typically less interesting is whether it's theater and what is more interesting is why we care so much, um, whether it's theater, mm -hmm. um, to, at least to me. And, um, and so she really delves into this question of the effort that goes into telling an audience that they are watching theater um, and what the specific traits are of theater that they should be able to recognize um, as they're seeing them, like um, the sweat on an actor's face during a particularly um, difficult soliloquy or um, the, the the change of scenery. Um, and um, the way that she does this by actually putting liveness to the side. Um, she talks about how, in fact, um, and one of her one of the quotations that um, stuck with me was um, that that uh, she writes that these productions demonstrate liveness to be less theater's ontology than its brand, um, and that was that was really a powerful statement um, in my mind, in the sense that, um, in fact liveness is is not the quality um, that these productions are using as central to what makes theater. Um, rather, they are placing liveness to the side, although there are some elements of liveness. She talks about the disappearance strategy that the stream will no longer be available at a certain point. Um, but um, but when she says uh, that these productions demonstrate the marginality of liveness to theater from within the heart of its orthodoxy, um, it, it explained to me so much about why I have um, personally always avoided watching any of these NT Live or RSC streams um, and, uh, and that very orthodoxy um, being an argument about conservatism in theater, um, I think we often tend to associate the digital or something streaming or something that exists in multiple platforms or um, or multiple um, media forms with experimentation. Um, and I think we can actually get to blaming experimental theater um, for, for some dismantling of liveness or some um, diffusion of liveness. Um, but in fact, she is showing it living um, right in the heart of what we might hold, uh, you know, what we might in a very conservative way hold dear to theater itself. So um, so as someone who studies ex primarily experimental and interdisciplinary performance, um, this article about contemporary theater that I do not study was incredibly useful in explaining so many things about our field. I, I agree. I think it's, it's clarifying in that it, it sort of it situates liveness as a sort of limited concept, one that maybe is not as useful as it was in terms of understanding what is specific about theater. It got me thinking about what um, theater going as a commodity shares with other, uh, frankly, luxury kind of bourgeois um, consumer experiences. And if liveness is not the point, and one of the things she points out is that Though some of these streams are broadcast in such a way that you can watch them if you're in a similar, you know, or nearby time zone at the same time or, you know, with some short delay as the night when they're going on, they're just as effective. They're just as compelling to audiences when you're watching them six or eight hours later. So part of what it's capturing, then I would say, is the ephemerality, right? The sense that you can see this for a limited time and then it's gone and you won't see it again. You won't be able to buy a DVD or a, an on-demand stream later. But it, there's also this quality to theater going, um, which is the specificity of the night that you've seen it, right? So um, I know you guys see a lot of theater in New York. For me, it's been like times in my life when New York was accessible to me. And, and when I could see special performances, it's partly about 
the contingencies, the irreducible contingencies of theater production. Was there an understudy that night? Was somebody sick? Was there a mishap with a prop or a costume bit? Did someone flub a line? I always remember I saw a Worcester group uh, per, uh, performance of um, their Emperor Jones piece in Dumbo and the night when I saw it they had a total failure of the tech like they had to start the show over half an hour in and I remember that specificity and I remember the time when I saw a late Richard Foreman show and I sat right next to Eric Bogosian there's all this sort of factors about theater going in what we think of as the live or sort of conventional mode where it's about what happened that night when you saw it and that's different from ephemerality right it's you can capture ephemerality without specificity in the same way um and so it occurs to me that a lot of this and 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 hunter um points this out right that it is um a lot of the things that the marketing or the brand of this product is telling you about its value um but i don't think she gets too cynical or at least not as cynical as i have just been (laughs) in my explication of this um well, I so. think, um, you know, I, your mention of, of seeing Richard Foreman makes me think about the first time that I saw a Richard Foreman piece and I was sitting, I was seated directly above Richard Foreman um, because, you know, he would sit in the middle of the very high, steeply raked seating and run the soundboard. Um, and so you could be sitting looking directly down at Richard Foreman. Um, and, uh, you know, what that points to is, um, is the relationship to the audience. Um, and so part of what this, I think that she's getting at is um, the audience member is construed in a very, um, in a very specific way. And she talks about um, the audience member for these performances sitting in the best seat in the house, but also a seat that no single audience member could ever really possibly occupy. It almost reminds me of the kind of um, monarchical setup in um, in a, a kind of like early modern stage where only the king had, um, had access to the correct perspective. Um, but um, it also made me think about um, the way that audience member behavior is integrated into um, performance and that that, that that audience member behavior as opposed to media can be a function of liveness. And I'm thinking here about um, an essay by Jennifer Buckley from um, 2012, where she writes about watching Force Entertain- one of the Force Entertainment 12-hour shows um, that was live tweeted. Um, and she writes that um, although the, the audience members who were completely comprised the vast majority of spectators were around the world and were not in the theater and were not watching live, um, the experience felt live because they were experiencing it in real time with the behavior of other audience members. And it was a constituted a kind of specific event. Um, and so it strikes me that um, what, what Lindsay's article is describing is the removal of that almost, that the audience member is not in this specific place, but that but actually is in this impossible no place. Um, and that was really intriguing for me to read about. I, I will say that I had a slightly <clears throat> coming at, I came at this um, in a way that was perhaps less about experimental theater, um, but more, I, I was thinking a lot about Broadway musicals. And, and I was thinking about Broadway musicals as the uh, sort of the privileged object in the theatrical commodities network that is often privileged as being precisely live, but is, and the contemporary production model is so thoroughly mediatized, so thoroughly like the sound mixing and the volume levels and the sound lights. And so, so the question of, of what can you see in a, in a Broadway musical, like being able to, you might be distracted by the person in front of you or to immediately to decide you, but the, the sort of that canard of like, I want to be have my eye travel over to the, you know, as somebody who goes to see a lot of musicals, I often pick an ensemble member who's my favorite. And one of the things I've noted in the last five or so years is it's really hard to watch anything other than what the production wants you to watch because of the way the sound is mixed and the way the lights are mixed. It forces your gaze in all kinds of ways. And I do think that, say, with Hamilton, the Hamilton film being released on Disney+, Plus, what was interesting is it gives you this sense of distance and the capacity to absorb in a way that is um, actually I had felt like when I was watching Hamilton on Disney, it felt like I had more agency as a spectator than I did any time I'd been in the theater because I felt like my gaze, my ears, everything was being charted by the technical apparatus of the highest end. And I do think that that's the note I'll conclude on is um, the highest end on uh, a performance like NT Live, Broadway musicals. These are the most resourced productions. These are the productions with the most elaborated technical apparatuses. And I do think that ultimately what I loved about 
uh, this reading of Hunter's article was that it oriented away from how did we feel about the story or about the performances and oriented our attention, our attention to the circumstances of production and what were the contexts of production that were um, particular in ways that were um, trackable across both historical time and that we could also look at in a particular phenomenon. That is a, a fascinating question. I uh, We do need to move on to our, our next segment, but one of the questions I had for Hunter's article, she, she argues in a couple of places that one of the effects of um, this sort of branding rhetoric or this way that these streams present themselves as theater in a, according to a certain orthodoxy is reification, that it's treating relationships that are not necessarily um, necessary or natural, but sort of treating them as, you know, a, a, a permanent or real definition that defines, um, that distinguishes between these two art forms. And I believe that. In other words, I, I totally buy the idea that there's a kind of didactic and um, assertive level to what NT Live and these other streams are doing vis-a-vis what theater is. But on the other hand, I would imagine that you could equally argue that they're part of the end of some of these distinctions being meaningful, right? If I'm going to see an NT production of Miss Julie or, you know, RSC productions at my local indie movie theater and buying popcorn and paying a ticket, and those components of the experience are basically borrowed from movie going, and then there's a screened theatrical production, I'm not sure that my takeaway from that whole experience is that there's something distinctly theatrical about what I saw on the screen. But I'm also not a typical audience member, I suppose. Well, and given the future of movie houses being as uncertain it is, as it is right now, I do think that that's another question of like, where will we see NT Live? Will it be in, in uh, cinemas or will it be in the same place we're watching television and streaming video? We'll be watching it on our devices as opposed to in dedicated buildings. That's, that's another big question coming up right now. Indeed. Well, let's move on to the next topic. Um, um, We wanted to address another facet or component of the current moment in which there's this great new abundance of digitally available theater. Um, Major American theaters, in two instances at least, are now using digital infrastructure to promote the work of important American playwrights who are not as produced as they ought to be. We're thinking of McCarter Theater's virtual festival of the work of Adrienne Kennedy and Center Theater Group's presentation of uh, the Greek trilogy by Luis Alfaro. Um, So here are these major American um, theatrical institutions dedicating resources, but in a particular mode, um, to presenting the work of these playwrights. Um, so, Brian, uh, what do you think? What do you think besides the, you know, what thoughts you may have about um, what you can actually see on screen and what they've picked? What's the broader significance here in terms of how these playwrights and others are being treated by these institutions? Well, I do think that because um, uh, what's a couple things are is uh, the Center Theater Group is producing the works, the uh, the Greek trilogy of Luis Alfaro, or sometimes called the Luis trilogy, um, in partnership with the Getty Museum, and so and. Just as McCarter is presenting, uh, is presenting the fest- the Adrian Kennedy Festival in collaboration with the D.C. area theater Roundhouse Theater, and so there's an an element of what we're seeing is we're seeing a new model of what regional theaters might call a co-pro or a co-production, of figuring out a way to sort of expand the impact of of a particular kind of event, an event that might have been a sort of an a, a, like a, a beautiful outdoor reading of one of these plays at the Getty in Los Angeles, is now somehow reimagined in the context of the pandemic to not only only sort of um, have a different impact imprint on those audiences that might have already been engaging it, but then it becomes newly and differently available. And I think for uh, for Alfaro and for Kennedy, both these are playwrights who are most widely known among theater folks who find them quite influential, like the individuals who might claim them as a particular influence. Also, often, also, they're taught widely. They're not produced widely. And I will say, um, one of my hats is I'm the resident scholar at the Soul Project, which is a, an initiative dedica- based in New York City, dedicated to um, cre- amplifying the impact of Latinx playwrights in the New York theater and beyond. And one of the big coups that... Um, that Soul Project counts as an important move was getting Alfaro, who's widely considered for the last three decades to be one of the most important Chicanx or Latinx dramatists, uh, who who was a playwright in residence for nearly a decade at uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, just incredibly prodigious presence in Chicago and Los Angeles, but had not had a major New York production in two decades. 
if and it, that might even be it might not maybe never had a New York production, but Soul was able to sort of partner with the public to bring uh, 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 Oedipus El Rey to a to a multiply extended production, which ultimately led to the production being planned for London, you know, had this impact of bridging the gaps that exist in the theater ecosystem. Adrienne Kennedy, widely known among feminists, among experimental, among African-American writers, but not necessarily among others. So so this kind of thing of how can these festivals, which both give tribute to the prodigious contributions and enduring impact of these particular writers, but do so in a way that can reach beyond one production, beyond one theater house, or beyond one seminar, is a really interesting Model. I know that um, Kennedy is experiencing as one of the el- one of the few remaining writing contributing works of her era. She was a peer of uh, Fornes and Albi and Guerre in the early days of the uh, of of uh, uh, just the list goes on in terms of who she was. Uh, uh, she first came to prominence in the early 1960s, and she's still around. She's still teaching. She's still writing. So it's a great opportunity for her to get her flowers now, even as acknowledging the works of her early works, as well as her very different, but still in a continuity works more contemporary, continuously. Uh, Alfaro, his plays are are seeing their first anthologization. There's a new edition of his Greek plays. And so there's a way in which I think this both lifts them, but also makes them more legible at the same time. And so, and these are interesting productions because they're hybrid, they're sort of readings and productions, and they're sort of what we might call virtually enhanced readings, uh, a, a thread we might return to later. But um, they're not productions. These are not NT Live, but these are ways to well, th- th- these are ways to access the productions in, um, in a way that I'm curious if they're going to have an impact beyond the streaming window. Well, this is this gets at a facet of it that I thought was interesting. Um, I was able to watch the um, the presentation of "He Brought Her Heart Back in a Box" um, by Adrian Kennedy, and I noticed that about the production. There, it was on a one hand, it was a lot of the elements of a staged reading, um, actors, music stands um, facing forward, but then there's this beautifully produced video um, elements to it over the red stage directions. Um, and, and here's the question. I, I don't know, Miriam, maybe you can take a stab at this. Um, though of course I'm curious to know what you think too, Brian. Um, on the one hand, it sounds great, right? There's new, um, resources dedicated to these important playwrights. It's broadly available so that people teaching classes and in high schools and colleges all over the country, all over the world can make use of them. It wasn't there before. But it's also being made available as part of this, at the same time as this big wave of new uh, digitally distributed content, which is sort of occasioned by the pandemic. So is this in a way a kind of temporary model that is something that is happening this year because a lot of theaters being distributed this way? But also these aren't full productions, as you point out. So are these theaters going to be able to say, well, yes, we're doing Shakespeare and A Christmas Carol and a bunch of other white playwrights, but look at what we're doing with Luis Alfaro, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on what they're doing, I think it's all good, but if you're dedicating resources to presenting or or producing in this mode, does it trade off with the season and the programming that's happening on the main stage for some of these theaters? I am shocked by how much resource uh, is being devoted to A Christmas Carol right now. Um, I I actually... um, can't really speak directly to um, to what those resources are because a Christmas Carol is um, just not something that's part of my life experience and uh, and not some not something that I value. But I do understand its um, its financial contribution to allowing um, seasons to happen at many theaters um, as well as uh, many others cultural attachments to a Christmas Carol. Um, I I would say that. Um, I hope that these festivals are not um, are not being allowed fewer resources than something um, conventional and commercial. But what the way that I would think about it is less as um, a kind of compromised production and more as an expansion of discourse around these playwrights. Um, and one of the things that I was really struck by in looking at um, the McCarters um, Audrey and Kennedy Festival is how much dialogue they are placing around the plays. Um, I watched Ohio State Murders and um, I was able to see um, two of the collaborators just talking about their relationships to the work of Audrey 
Jillian Kennedy um, at the beginning of the video, just embedded within the video itself. Um, and uh, one of the collaborators mentioned having um, her one of her first um, positions out of college, having been assisting um, with the signature theaters um, season that was devoted to the work of Kennedy. And so I was thinking about that model, the signature theater model um, of um, amplifying the work of a specific playwright um, for an entire season um, and, and that these festivals are really part of that model and are speaking to that model um, in a way more so than they're speaking to the format that we call festival, um, which yep. is um, so much about gathering in person and having something that's concentrated um, in a short amount of time. Um, but, but the idea of devoting significant time and space to the work of a significant playwright and maybe one who is underproduced um, is really important. And the number of panels um, and conversations with a wide range of artists and scholars and critics and dramaturgs um, that surrounds all the programming um, in the Audrey and Kennedy Festival is really impressive to me and also speaks to something that I think we are seeing happening more now, which is um, institutional theaters taking on some kind of role in promoting critical dialogue, not conventional reviews, but um, Playwrights Horizons just launched, um, for instance, a, a journal. Um, there's the Flash Paper. There's um, a lot of institutional moves to add additional critical voices and analytical writing and conversation um, into the structure of how we encounter um, a work of art. Um, so I was really impressed with the way that um, the McCarter structured that um, idea. And then also, um, you know, just thinking about the um, the trilogy um, and the way that that brings together these three plays um, and one could watch them um, all at once, I believe, I'm not sure. I think the, the releases are staggered, but one could potentially watch them as if one were watching a Greek trilogy in all in one day, um, which is something that we might not see happening um, if it were to be fully produced um, in a live context. Um, so those are a couple of things that I think are incredibly valuable. Um, and I thought the, the, the Ohio State Murders was um, beautifully produced, just not in um, maybe a, a, a specific context that we might expect it to be. Um, so I really appreciated um, a lot of what these theaters are doing. I, I would agree that I think that there is, I think I hear, I hear the wariness and the concern, and I do think the invocation of, of uh, Christmas Carol is a great way to sort of think about that in terms of what is the tension between um, conservative choice making and self and for lack of a, I think this is the technical term, butt covering that um, institutional theaters might do in their programming choices, especially in this moment. I do think that these, both of these events are, have a, have a good deal about client relationship of how to maintain a relationship to the subscription base for these different entities. At the same time, I do think what I find most exciting about it is they're drawing upon a skill set that contemporary, uh, especially uh, theater makers who are in the work of putting on new plays. It's a skill set that actors, directors, and writers really have, which is this limited rehearsed reading. It's a repertoire, like they do a lot of them. They do these sort of 24 hour, twenty like a contract of 29 hour readings. They do these a lot. They do these more than they do plays. And so it's, a, it's what's exciting about it is seeing that skill set of the discovery space of a play being put a sketch of what a production might look like, drawing upon the skills of these actors and these technicians um, in a way that opens up that part of the process. So it doesn't have to be a full production for us to utilize those skills, especially in this moment. So I actually am optimistic that we might see more in terms of play exploration that is shared with audiences without the full burden of of a fully, fully uh, resourced production of this idea of uh, bringing audiences into the discovery and the, and the, the exploration work. Um, and of course, we'll have hierarchies of which ones get the priority, et cetera. But um, I, I found it was, uh, I love going to stage readings often more than I like going to see full productions, precisely because there's an energy, there's a way that audiences can complete the sentence in their own imagination and discover their own dedication to a voice or an artist that way. And so I'm hoping that um, also just one tag is um, uh, McCarter, for example, is in a, is in a, um, 
leadership transition and the um there's uh this is one of the instead of doing a, a christmas carol this is what the new artistic director in collaboration with the new associate artistic director chose to do as their first main offering to introduce themselves to the to their their audience so there is a kind of priority setting that goes in this time you could do christmas carol or you could do alfaro and that sort of does say a priority setting for what a particular institutional might be thinking about what matters right now and what matters in the near or foreseeable future well, that's that's remarkable because I, I did think a, ma- a, a facet of this is I could see big regional theaters uh, on the level of McCarter or Center Theater um, <clears throat> sort of getting into a prestige arms race by being the theater that's going to make themselves partly known by backing one of these playwrights that has a lot of respect and a lot of um, you know literary and, and artistic value but I do imagine maybe I maybe I'm naive that this is something that costs them money rather than something that allows them to rake in ticket revenue and go into the black every year because that's what Christmas Carol yep. does that's why everyone does it um, the you know but if you're if you're getting your revenue increasingly from uh, you know, philanthropy and sponsorship and less from ticket sales, then um, perhaps that makes sense. Perhaps that's a good strategic move for some of these, some of these um, very important theaters. Especially in this period when all institutional theaters are negotiating the uncertainty of survival and what is going to be the expectation and willingness of audiences coming back. I think these are, I, I was pleased to see that these were among the experiments being undertaken by some of these larger profile institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, listeners should check these out. You can you can go and, and make a donation. I think the center. I think the Luis Alfaro project is it's a free yep. ticket. Um, the MacArthur um, Adrian Kennedy offerings are I think fifteen dollars. Well worth it. Um, and so check those out. And both are continuing um, for so uh, for a little while longer. So there's going to be time. Yes, indeed. Um, so moving down the garden path to further delights that we can find on the internet, um, uh, we, we, we sampled some of the more experimental theater offerings that are out there. Um, we watched uh, Split Britches, Last Gasp, uh, WFH. Uh, I, you guys, first of all, uh, Miriam, can you help me out with those three letters at the end of the title? I couldn't figure it out. Working from home. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Um, I will leave this in so the listeners can can hear how clueless I was about that. I, I really racked my brain. We watched that. We we picked out a, a few other um, streaming offerings, including Marike Splint's You Are Here, uh, produced by the La Jolla Playhouse. Um, Miriam, tell us about your experience of watching, I don't know, uh, Split Britches, first of all. And Yeah, absolutely. So um, I watched Split Britches, Last Gasp, Working From Home. Um, and I also watched Marika Splint's um, You Are Here. Uh, and um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Split Britches first, because I know that we all watched that piece. And um, I, I just have to say this piece, for lack of better words, this piece gave me theater vibes that I have not had since I actually sat in a theater. Um, and that was so joyful um, that uh, I'm going to try to articulate what exactly was joyful about it. Um, but I just wanted to mark that. Um, one of the things that was so impressive to me, and and um, I there was a little bit of a recorded talkback um, in the version that we were able to see, and I was able to hear a little bit of it and understand that um, that Lois Weaver and Peggy Shaw had begun making this piece before the pandemic um, really forced everyone to stay wherever they were. And then they ended up needing to stay in England um, and, and had a kind of um, empty house that had one chair in it to work in. Um, and that is where they recorded the piece from. Um, and so um, that quality of, of, sh- of shift and liminality is um, so present in the piece. Um, And also the way that their company, um, Split Bridges, is such um, an an example of how an institution, and I'm using institution really to just mean a group of collaborators, um, can exist over many decades and mark their, um, their existence as um, somewhat as a group that is both historical and incredibly present. Um, and so this piece is retrospective. Peggy Shaw spends a lot of time talking about formative influences and musicians from the 1950s um, and changing relationships to queerness and transness and vocabulary. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple um, of times um, talks about, you know, 
being glad that split britches and hot peaches before them started working in the 70s when um, there were there there were fewer or just different sets of vocabulary around queerness um, and trans identity. Um, but there's also something that um, was very specific to an exploration of theater um, in the way that they constructed the piece. Um, and I'm thinking about the folding table that Peggy Shaw lies underneath and, and they talk through um, how to survive various forms of catastrophe um, from, from underneath the folding table, the um, rain boots that Lois Weaver wears, um, the instructions that one could as easily imagine projected on a scrim as shown on a screen, um, the dance breaks, which were so beautifully choreographed in the garden, um, the repetition of, um, of the phrase, is it funny or that isn't funny that Peggy Shaw brings up over and over again that suggests a kind of changing relationship to um, what we understand to be truth um, and what we understand to be acceptable speech um, that the two of them are grappling with together. Um, and then, you know, the last thing that I'll say just in an introductory way is there's a moment um, partway through where Lois Weaver gets up very close to the screen. Um, and then all of a sudden the screen cuts to the video editor saying, oh, I think she might've hit the wrong button or something. Um, <laughs> and this struck me as, um, as something that is uh, happening through technology, but it's right out of theater. Um, I mean, for there was a while in between maybe 2013 and 2017, um, where every experimental theater piece um, that you went to, and I say this with great love, um, had a minute where um, there was a staged conversation about whether and how the show should proceed. And that meta theatricality <laughs> just became part of our vocabulary. Um, and so Shaw and Weaver incorporated that into the way that they were making this piece and this question of whether and how will we proceed when it is done at its best, and here I think it was, um, is a question that is not just uh, people in the theater arguing about um, how to make a show, but is actually whether and how should we proceed in life. Um, and, and so it, it captured that in such a succinct um, and articulate way for me, and I was so grateful that I had the chance to see it. It knocked me out too, and I would say I would say I don't know what the vibes you got were, but I got my own version of those vibes. I found it incredibly moving. I found it incredibly relaxing in a weird way. Um, I found it a very much like a. Um, it felt like, like it just felt like what they would make. I mean, there was something about it that really demonstrated, I think, first off, these are folks who really know what they're doing and know what their craft is. And even if it was developed, like Circle Jerk, I think was talked about in the podcast a couple times ago, and they had a developmental run up to being able to really lean in and make a new piece and really sort of discover new, discover a lot of new creative muscles among that collaboration team. Here we have really well practice seasoned collaborators who know both what they do and what they do in relation to each other and also have often worked with scant resources often have worked in found spaces often have worked in spaces where there was no big separation between the tech staff and the audience and the onstage personnel like think of the wow cafe back in the day there was no separation of that and so i think that th this is one of the great things of like these are the these are the uh experts we should be learning from in this moment and i'm so grateful that this piece came along because i thought it was because it really demonstrates the sense of composition the sense of visual composition which really echoes physically what they do in space, the way they can make beautiful moments on stage. Uh, I've seen them in conference contexts, like academic conferences, when they're in these banal hotel spaces and are able to create with the materials in the room scenes of extraordinary visual beauty. And this kind of dexterity and clarity, it's just so... Um, it, it's so deftly done, and I think it demonstrates just how good they are at what they do in a way that is not always recognized as technique, craft, or artistry. And so there's, for me, it was just, a, it knocked me out. I was really thrilled that this compelled me to watch, that the, coming together for this conversation forced me to sit down and press play. Yeah, I, I had similar reactions to that, and I want to get onto some of the other things we saw. But I, I, I had very a very similar takeaway, which was, oh, this is a not ideal theatrical producing situation, but for, these are two masters of the forms of theater. They're 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 going to have no trouble with this. And I think my favorite moment, besides the bees, which was one of the dance breaks, um, uh, was this moment. Maybe I don't know. It's towards the end um, when the two of them are in this 
scene that feels like a kind of scenes from a marriage kind of overwrought realism and they're you know they're they're hitting their marks they're doing it but occasionally Peggy Shaw will like drop a line and they'll laugh and then they'll go back into it um and and there was this you know I don't know their biographies or their work well enough to know where the line between fact and fiction was but there's moments where you feel like there's a lot of humanity and truth being revealed in the um, the sort of distinction between their professional mm-hmm. working relationship and their personal relationship. Um, Peggy Shaw talks about, I think she mentions having suffered a stroke recently, and they're they're just, I don't know, there's a sort of presentation that is very much a sort of theater vibe of here's a physical body. Um, of course, I'm watching it, you know, through Zoom, but still that sense of here's a body and its reality that is part of this art form um, and uh, those sort of, you know, elements of theater that we think of as being sort of phenomenologically significant. I felt like I, that was all there. Well, sound bleed was a huge yeah. part of yeah. the experience of watching the piece. Um, one would hear Peggy Shaw speaking and uh, a, ha- a split second um, before Lois Weaver's voice reading the text and Peggy Shaw is wearing um, headphones. And so, um, you know, I was thinking about um, being in the same room and the way that sound is something that in when one is in the same room just does bleed. And then I was thinking, of course, about the the technology that's commonly used in theater today where um, actors uh, will wear in-ear devices and have text um, spoken to them. But in 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 um, ironically, uh, in when when we do this with high tech, um, um, theater in a conventional theater space, we often don't hear the text that's being spoken. And in this case, we did hear it. Um, and and that quality of um, things being in the same space together, even if we weren't in the same space with them. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say about the piece is just that um, we live in such a deeply ageist society. And I think that Peggy Shaw just um, meditating on the evolving evolution um, of uh, of queer work and queer vocabulary and um, the relationship to Black music um, was such a graceful example of how to think about um, age as an artist and how we should be um, approaching um, artists who have this huge history of work. And and so I was really grateful for that, too. Well, I love that we're talking about Luis Alfaro and Adrienne Kennedy and Peggy Shaw and Lois Weaver, these folks who are who are uh, on on the sort of they're not the they're not the new under 30 the 30 under 30 crowd we're talking about the the a different demographic here and i do think that what you named about them there's something ethereal and magical and really what i what i love about it in some ways is that sense of the marvelous and i've i've really enjoyed the moments of marvelousness that this that the last eight months and performance explorations have shown when a performance strategy sort of captures in that sense of wow that sense of wonder that sense of marvel and for me it was with the sound bleed but also the visual bleed the weird the weird way that there was a layering sometimes where we would hear lois sometimes sometimes we would see a vain a vain visual projection of her in a way that was not meant it's like was that a mistake was that accidental is that my imagination being able to hold on to that light touch to allow the sort of the roughness of the performance but also to allow that sense of intentionality to let it be a space of mystery in my own spectatorial imagination saying did they mean for that to happen that's amazing was just such a I think um, again the kind of the way that they were able to hold the ruminative and again, the sort of tradition they come out of of borrowing a version, because the script, as I understand it, from the piece by New York in New York Times by by Elizabeth Vincentinelli, is in the piece you named uh, panel. That's actually a borrowing of a script from Marriage Story. They borrowed that literally and just sort of used it as a way oh, to no activate kidding. some of the some of the what's what's always part of their thing, which is the tension and the 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 the, the sort of the space of of long-term relationship, uh, recurrent infidelity or having affairs, the the differential dimensions of the way that they are seen as both a team and when they're seen as individual, how Peggy gets a lot more attention. <laughs> These kinds of tensions yeah. are very real. They're very real. And and uh, and so that using that as a vehicle to name that, but not to not to do that, like that sort of space of how to clock it, but not 
not only do that. So there's a kind of a measure of light touch and intentionality that I think goes to that meta moment so brilliantly because it is, instead of it being, oh, here we go, it was like, oh, this is sweet. This is funny. I'm, I'm, and it's a breath of breath of air for me as an audience member. I can have a sh I can shift in my seat a little bit in that moment with them as opposed to in other kinds when it just feels so such a device. And so again, um, it's, uh, and, and I will say too, just as, a, as another thing, I love that they, I, I realized one of the unexpected things, like going to the theater, I had uh, in in the before times, I had preferred venues. I had preferred theaters that I liked, preferred the neighborhood they were in. I liked the way they did their house management. I liked sitting in that theater. I liked the fact that the bathrooms were nice or clean or whatever. I had very specific opinions about all different venues. And I will say that I have a very, that I love the fact that they use Stellar, which has become one of my preferred venues for virtual or streaming performance. Uh, and, you know, as opposed to some of the other mechanisms I've had access to, which I found much more cumbersome. Yeah. So there was something about it that, that they, were use, they were using a platform I've come to treat appreciate this was my first time with stellar which if you haven't used it um listeners you buy your ticket for the stream and then you're able to uh go in through roku or google play or or um apple tv and there's an app on a smart tv that allows you to um, use your, you know, television if you have a big one or, or a good entertainment system to watch the stream, which was which was a benefit. You know, we only have a couple of minutes left in this segment, but I'm curious to know, you know, maybe just a brief thoughts on on what else you saw. Um, Miriam, you, you and I both watched uh, Marika Splint's um, "You Are Here," as did Brian. Great. So let me we'll just tag this with a few thoughts. But I thought it was mesmerizing and really gripping. I mean, valuable and interesting in ways that were distinct from uh, You Are Here. The play is kind of a, a vulnerable and open and honest meditation on the experience of social interactions uh, confined through the the conditions of the pand pandemic, but then also the way that um, uh, Splint uses um, Google Maps and Google Earth uh, to wander all over the Earth and um, uh, sort of she narrates her experience of this um, highly constrained relationship to space, um, and it was great. There was an element of it where the the viewers in perhaps the you know premiere date of it um, are shown in a sort of zoom gallery feature and I was treated to seeing uh, several people I know uh, uh, I don't know David Diggs but he was there and you of course recognize him he's very striking but there were a couple other people I knew and I was like oh my gosh I haven't seen you in years um, and that was an extra little bit of enhancement um, because of the you know the specificity of social relationships the specificity of space that she's talking about though all through these weird and clunky tools we're forced to use now. I love that you mentioned that because there was something about like it's the very first time I think I've I've had that pleasure of theater going of seeing a minor celebrity and seeing a friend I didn't expect to see. Yeah, and that sort of that sort of delight was something I kept. Um, it was it was fascinating how it re reintegrated me into the experience, even though I wasn't part of the Zoom gallery. Yeah, um, I, I also thought the piece was really beautiful. And one of the things I appreciated about it was how she presses up, in, insistently presses up against the boundaries of Google Earth again and again and again. Um, she marks the places where the, the driver's cars stop, where they stop in the sand, where she talks about the working conditions um, of the drivers um, who take the photos. She, she brings up photos um, that are no longer accurate. Um, her husband sitting in the backyard of a house they don't live in anymore, for instance. Um, and um, uh, and she does it without making the whole piece about a critique of Google Earth or a critique of um, digital surveillance. It's just part of the conditions um, of being social um, and about and of thinking about global space at this moment. Um, and at the very end, um, there's a kind of moment where she she does a Google Earth in a way. She walks out, the very last thing we see is that she walks out of her house um, and she's in her street and she therefore has the vantage point um, of the Google Earth, the car driver, right? She's standing in the middle of the street. Um, and then we, we see her come out um, and walk away in the frame. And so we suddenly understand that she's not the one standing behind the camera. And so there's a kind of splitting that happens between um, the surveillance and the person um, that just happens in this very organic way right at the end um, that I thought was a, a very smart way to end the piece and, um, and really beautiful. 
Yeah, it was it was mastery in a different kind yeah. of way, which was really investing in the specificity of these digital tools as opposed to the more traditional um, techniques of theatrical performance, um, but for really great effect as well. Well, I was reminded of a term that uh, Brand- that Lindsay Brandon Hunter talks about, which is the idea of digital translation, of sort of introducing the idea of translation. And I think with both... Um, a last gasp and with you are here there are pieces that i really felt like i got a clear sense of what the technique of the artist was and i got a clear sense of i really feel this is a really apt representation of this work and i would also love to see it live not a replacement but seeing that there'd be another i could see this being similar granted she probably would have not been pregnant when she presents it again but there is a way in which um and i love that reveal i love the fact that we are have this incredible sense of intimacy with her life and her details and what would have been an embodied conspicuousness of her on stage is sort of kept um sorry spoiler alert um as sort of a reveal and uh but i do think that it was a really striking um variation on a piece not so much thinking that one has to be uh, one needs to, and that's, I think, a fetish that sometimes happens in the liveness debates of which version was the authentic version and which is the copy. And I do think what we're seeing in here is a version of what Hunter asks us to think about in terms of translation, of what is the adaptation, what is the adjustment, what is the translation. And that was what I, the other other piece I saw this week, which was um, uh, uh I'm just I just blanked on the producing organization, but Season of Change, perhaps, um, is the organization in Chicago that staged a virtual, a virtually enhanced presentation of Fefu and her friends, drawing upon a cadre of extraordinary Chicago actors to present an enhanced reading presentation of Fefu and her friends. And again, it was this thing of it was like it was. It was not. It was like what we talked about with Alfaro and with Kennedy. It was enhanced. It was. It was its own thing, and it was really extraordinary and lovely and remarkable. And it was also slightly adjusted and adapted. So I got a clear sense that this had an integrity as a translation in this context that was different than a proxy or a sort of a rough sketch of something that we. If we could really do it, it'd be great. It was more like this is what we what we're doing, and and so for uh, it's the third Fefu I've seen in quarantine, and it was as effective as the others because Fefu who remarkably adapts very well to this moment. That's great. Well, we need to sort of wrap things up, though I was so glad to have the two of you and your um, critical uh, critical points of view on these works of contemporary theater. Um, the last thing we'll do on, on the podcast is our drafts. This is the space we make for our uh, musings, our work in progress, our incomplete thoughts. Um, mine is just a sort of impression about teaching at this moment. I've been teaching on campus with masks on in a sort of hybrid format where some of my students are in the room and some are, are remote for every class meeting. But I and, and colleagues who are teaching remotely have noticed uh, it just feels different this semester. The students are bored. <laughs> the students, um, you know, I think are under different kinds of pressure than they usually are. But one of them is that I feel like they just want things to do. And so I know that I'm not the only faculty member who's been scheduling, you know, sort of screening parties, just sort of voluntary, non-graded things that the students, I think, are 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 making time for because they have the time. Um, and in ways, you know, this is not the ideal teaching situation at all, but there are moments when I feel like I have been um, more compassionate, more lenient, a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more um, human with my students. And in a way that feels good and feels better than some of the other, you know, teaching interactions I've had before. So it's just something that's striking me at this moment at the end of a pretty, pretty stressful semester. Um, Brian, what, what's on your mind these days? Um, well, what's on my mind these days is I'm coming to the end of a uh, semester as well. And it's been, um, it feels like it's the semester that it, it never ended because it feels like in some ways working through the summer, it feels like it's the same semester as last March. Um, and uh, But as I do, I, I am continuing a pedagogical practice that I began uh, for a course I was teaching. I mentioned Theater and Society Now. One of the features of Theater and Society Now is a newsletter, which is in some ways the weekly list of current events. And it's under, it's my Theater Click newsletter. And it's, a, it's on Substack, uh, like very 2020, I have a newsletter on Substack. But um, it's available for, unlike a 
a lot of Substack authors, it's free for sign up. And because I decided to teach the course again in the spring, because I thought it was a really great opportunity for me to learn with my students about what this particular moment was, um, I decided to offer the course. When another course got canceled, I decided I'd just reoffer this course again. And so the newsletter is going to continue, and it may continue indefinitely. So I encourage listeners, if you've not heard my voice before, if you don't know me, um, it's a great opportunity. Uh, please sign up for my newsletter. You can find it. It's um, the easiest way to find it is look for the pinned tweet on my Twitter feed, which is Stinky Lulu. That's at S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. And that'll on the pinned tweet, you'll see both the, the graphic for Theater Click and for the Stinky Lulu podcast. And Stinky Lulu podcast is on hiatus, but the Theater Click newsletter will continue at least through May and I suspect long thereafter. So uh, it's a great weekly roundup. If you don't, you don't have to bookmark everything. I'll try to do it for you. And it arrives in your, arrives in your inbox every Sunday morning. Yeah, Brian, it is. I've been meaning to to give you kudos and, and thanks for putting that together. It's obviously a lot of work on your part, and it's such a great resource for those of us who are hoping to keep on top of what's going on in the field and in, and in theater in general. Um, Miriam, what, what's your draft for the episode? Um, if I can quickly respond to your draft panel and then um, and then give mine. Um, uh, at the end of my um, intro to theater class, my students were asked to stage a piece about um, time and place. That's that's our last unit every year. Um, and, and this year, one of my students who, um, whenever we meet on Zoom, which is half of our classes, um, he, he has a different digital background. Um, he gave us a tour of the digital backgrounds that he had used over the course of the semester. And I recognized each and every one of them. And they each aligned to some state of being that he was embodying on that that given day of, you know, that Thursday in October. Um, and so there was a kind of recognition that the class was able to have, um, even in this digital space that um, that was really wild. Um, but the draft that I prepared um, is about the, um, the Harry Ransom Center's um, uh, questions to theater historians, their, their archiving um, project. And I actually, um, talked to Eric Kaliri yesterday um, about how that's going. Um, and uh, that is a project to, um, in this moment of 2020, this historic year, um, to collect as many materials as possible um, from theater artists, individual artists, organizations, journalists, um, and to assemble um, a really robust archive of what the year 2020 has meant um, in, in theater making. Um, and so um, there's a whole system um, on the website where artists and organizations and institutions can submit materials. Um, and these range from press releases about canceled productions to um, video tours of how an artist created a studio in his closet um, and, and everything in between. Um, and there's so much to say about this and I'm looking forward to um, working with this archive myself. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to mention um, for the listeners to this podcast is that um, the Harry Ransom Center is particularly interested in actually knowing knowing what questions historians think we might have um, for this archive. And so to that end, um, there's a Google form um, that Eric is distributing and that I'm, I'm guessing we could link to somehow on the podcast um, website that, um, that historians can fill out to ask of theaters, um, what would we like to know about what theater is in this moment? Absolutely. We, we can put that up on our webpage and, and retweet it. I think, I think on the podcast Twitter account, we've we retweeted Eric Kaliri recently, but it's a, it's a really important um, endeavor that he's embarking on. And if you send me the link, I'll put it in this week's newsletter. Absolutely. Shall do. <laughs> um, Brian, Miriam, thank you so much for, for your appearance on the podcast, for joining the, the, the coterie of regular co-hosts. Um, listeners, thank you for downloading and streaming, and we will have another episode of the podcast for you in 2021. Wow. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. Our intro music is by Septahelix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast. 